During lockdown, when all you could do was go for a walk, I noticed that there was a man living in a homemade shelter where the new river meets Pym's Brook in North London. He was there for months, but then, suddenly, he and his shelter were gone. I never spoke with him, but this story imagines a possible life. Under the new river. For the past seven years I have lived under the bridge where Pym's Brook meets the new river. There is adequate shelter from the rain. The brook rarely overflows. When it does, I can move to a makeshift encampment on the slope below the railway line. There is ample cover there from the bushes and always something in the refuse that collects there to help with protection from the rain and the cold. But it is usually not cold, and now I barely notice the rain. I suppose I have become numb in a way, numb to my surroundings, hardened, weather-beaten. But still, I prefer the bridge. I prefer to be close to the brook. I like to sleep with the sound of flowing water in my ears. I press close to the wall, and from there I cannot be seen from the new river path. No one climbs down to the brook. No, that's not true. Four or five times a year, young men, occasionally with a girl, scramble down the slope. They curse, they tear some clothing, they trip and get mud on their knees. And then they kick me where I lie pressed against the wall. They kick me in the chest and in the mouth and in the back of my head when I turn my face to the wall. They sit on me and they throw my possessions into the brook. Sometimes they urinate on me. Once a young man pulled off my sleeping bag and defecated inside it. But it is rare, these visits from the young, from the angry, from the hate-filled young. And they do not stay to torment. They inflict their punishment and they are gone. They are easily bored. They could not live here under the bridge where Pym's brook meets the new river. Is this a choice? I am asked by the only other people who talk to me. Every few months they step down to the brook. They are much more careful than the others. They do not trip or fall. They take their time. They keep their distance. We are concerned, they say. We are concerned for your mental health. But I tell them that my mental health is the same as it has always been. I tell them that I have food. I tell them that I am in good physical health. I tell them that I wash in the river that I have no need of money, and that I do not want to come with them. I do not want to accept their offer of a hostel. They do not like my replies, but eventually, after they have stood, staring mournfully at me, staring with sad judgment at my bedding and my clothes, staring at my few worn belongings, eventually they turn and they go. They vanish, back into the noise that lies beyond the river, back into the humming and the rumbling, the North Circular Road is two hundred metres away, but I have not looked at it for years. Morrison's Supermarket is two hundred metres the other way, and I have prowled there excessively. This is how I source my food. From the waste, from the garbage, from the mounds of surplus. They know who I am. I have foraged here for years. They have ceased to be startled. They do not call the police or urge me to go away. I am known or rather, I am unthreateningly unknown. I do not stop for conversation, and I never carry away more than I need. 
Back to the bridge I scuttle, where the brook passes under the railway and then the river, where the light is always cool, and I am seen merely to flicker at the edges of vision. I inhabit my world. I occupy my space. I assert very little, just the necessity of being left alone. This is not the wild. This is not the great outdoors. Perhaps they exist, but not here. Yet the new river path is attractive in its own way. When the water is dredged, it remains clear for some months. Then I can observe the fish, the ducks and the coots. I can watch the cormorants, the frogs, the newts and the gulls swim and dive. They hunt and survive along the banks and in the reeds and weeds of the flowing water. The river, though, which is, of course, not really a river, gets clogged with detritus. People throw their old belongings into it. They hurl their old clothes and electrical goods either into the river or up onto the railway embankment. They leave the food wrappings, the beer cans and the vodka bottles from their desultory bacchanals at night. They strew the ground and they fill the water with the endless flowing junk of humanity. This is not the wild. It is a half-world, with green shoots and plastic decay. And I have from time to time been grateful for what has been discarded. A mattress, bedding, a wooden trolley, boxes and pallets, suitcases and shoes. I could not scavenge if they were less careless. My half-world, where foxes scramble over broken fridges, where goslings are reared among used nappies. I love the night, bacchanals aside. I love to listen to the silence nearly falling, to the clattering and throbbing of machine and human fading out, dialing down to a background whisper. It is always there, the seething rage of the city. But at night, here at least, it is tamed. And even the young men, with their lager-fueled excitement and their thrashing music, have little endurance. They shuffle off into the distance at last and leave the world to darkness. Then I revel softly in the quiet music of my brook as it drifts along, calming further the tinnitus of the capital. All is hushed and all sorrow is tethered. Pym's Brook is a small tributary of the River Lee. It is one of the most polluted streams in London, and yet, to me, it provides the pulse of sanity. I cohabit with nature then, but I can't afford to be sentimental. I have not given names to the ducks and the fish. I do not weep at the beauty of furry goslings and cooties. I will free a trapped bird, lift dangerous waste from a coot's nest, and clear a path through coagulating algae for fish trying to move downstream. But neither I nor anyone else, it seems, can win the battle against plastic, tin and sewage. There is no logic I can discern to the deployment of the dredging machine. For weeks the sludge pushes up against the sluice that lets the water move under the North Circular Road and on towards central London. Glass beer bottles stand upright in the swamp which becomes as viscous as wet concrete. The stench of biological and inorganic decay is borne on the wind as far down as my shelter. The new river threatens to choke on the unchecked excretion of dead and dying matter. 
until, that is, the jaws of the metal dredger are finally switched into action and steaming piles of fetid rubbish are lifted out of the water and dumped in the locked yard. The stench rises to a crescendo of disturbed resistance before the lorries come to take it all away. Where, I wonder... Where does the scooped-out grunge of the new river finally rest? This world, this little haven and hell, oscillates between a clean and verdant existence and a suffocated, poisoned one. And yet the fish and the birds always return. Sometimes it seems as if conditions have deteriorated to the point where nothing living could breathe or flourish here, and then the sheer will of the world reacts, and they re-emerge thriving, growing, fertile with the future. I am usually content in the shadow of my cave, and I stay there to avoid the walkers of the new river path, who beam and chatter as they stroll the merry way. I am not a misanthropist. I do not wish them any harm. There are many frequent and many infrequent adventurers, and they stare down at me, or if I am caught near the river, even greet me as they pass on their way to whatever destination they have chosen. Often I hear exchanges that include some surprise at the discovery of London's green arteries. I am always slightly surprised by this surprise. The city has always been in the vice-grip of weeds, of grass and bushes and trees struggling to emerge of animals and insects, of reptiles and arachnids, mites and microbes, surging through human barriers, composting, recycling, devouring. What did they think was going on? The city has always been temporary. But we have short lifetimes. I sit and stare into the brook, fascinated, spellbound, by the simple movement of water. And my mind stops, my thoughts are held still. I banish my history. The brook responds the same way to every eventuality. The water gently pushes through. The water always finds a way. Calamity, apocalypse, heartbreak. Stare into the brook and everything is carried off. Drive down the demons, drive them down into the dungeon of the mind and cage them there. Demons? They're not demons. They're simply memories, emotions, broken beliefs, the tatters of a life. That's all they are. On a good day, there is quiet. No voices, no disturbance, no uninvited scrutiny. On a good day, I empty my thoughts and hover by the brook or the river. I hover in a solitude of dignified vacancy. It is my best attempt, my shabby zen, my pitiful meditation. I am a tramp, after all, am I not? A vagrant, at least. But no, there is too much movement in tramp. Tramps go from place to place. They beg, they bemoan. I do none of these things. I am not a tramp. On a bad day, though, as I stare at the water as I try to immerse myself in the clear, cool simplicity of its running, I fail to hold back the past. It rushes in, it overwhelms me, and I must sift painfully through the derelictions of my history. I had a job. I had a wife. I had a youth, a childhood, and a birth. How can that possibly be true? I have always been here, 
I am the man who lives under the bridge where Pym's brook meets the new river. I am satisfied with that. I have slipped my past. I will never go back. But you cannot slip your memories. You may hope and pray that the haunting will fade, but ghosts are unruly. They love to retell an old story. They love to taunt my decline. If I let them humiliate me today, then with luck I will have some clear days ahead, some peace, some silence. I accept the deal. Where shall we go first, then? Where will they choose to dance upon my shame? My dignity, perhaps, as an officer of local government? Yes, let us start there. It was not a high calling, but I was proud enough of it. Environmental health officer has a good bureaucratic but concerned air about it. I dealt every day with the pain and misery of human existence expressed through the medium of filth. There was a fabulous variety of conditions to be discovered. Toilets, baths and sinks clogged with excrement, pigeons and seagulls trapped and shrieking in indoor colonies, lovingly but lethally caged by their mad human captors. Any number of rat, bat, and cat hoarders, floors piled high with droppings, rotting food stinking in the hallway, newspaper cities constructed in one-bedroom flats, the sweet decay of fruit and vegetables used as a giant cocoon for the terrified tenant to sleep in, dead dogs, starving chinchillas, free-range tarantulas, cobras, lizards, and parrots, Domestic zoos, with all God's creatures, overrun with cruelty and neglect. And a steady accumulation of deceased homo sapiens, as strange smells were reported by neighbours. She keeps to herself. Haven't seen her for weeks. Didn't want to disturb her. But when we forced entry, there she was, and the puppy dead too, though not before it had eaten half her face. Behind it all, the stories of ordinary people slowly losing their grip, slowly fading from view, retreating to their private worlds, where they insulated themselves against the roar of savage life, but alas, so often with tragic consequences. They didn't all die, of course. We were not always too late to save the brittle, shivering souls we found, and they could be angry too, furious that we had dared to invade their secret nests of sorrow. They were only defending themselves, after all, against the terrifying threat of reality. Often we would have to go to court to get warrants to break in. Magistrates would huff and puff and mutter under their breath about Englishmen and castles, holding firm on liberty for five minutes before collapsing under the weight of our quiet disdain. Liberty, yes, but order too, freedom forever, but not when property is at stake. So much for the front line. The truth was that the majority of our time was spent in the office, processing each case on which we worked. It was possibly my imagination, my exhaustion or base resentment, but it seemed to me that the process tended to expand at the expense of the interaction, and I fell out of love with my job, and into bitter regret at the way it was changing. But I would have clung on. I would have continued. It was Kate's death that was the turning point. I pause here because I have managed, I have 
persevered partly by avoiding a full articulation of that one sharp syllable, her name. I permit myself, or at least sometimes I do not fight the recollection of her, but I cannot speak her name, I cannot dwell on her name without risking collapse. Forgive me. I say the word, and I must stagger for a moment before I drag myself upright. We were unremarkable. We had few friends, but they were kind and constant. We did not have children. There was a time when we thought we might, but our bodies did not agree, and we never sought medical advice. We just accepted. As I describe it, everything about our lives seems so quaintly conventional and dull. And perhaps it was. But there was a fierce energy when our modest voices chimed together. Part collision, part embrace, part passion, part silence. Unwisely, perhaps, we became each other's world. And it was sufficient, sweetly, abundantly sufficient. There was an opulence to our little life, a profound tenderness in our casual calm. When you unfurl yourself, when you strip to your naked spirit for the woman you never even dared to hope would love you, then you have so exposed your being, so dangerously revealed the channels of your heart, that you know you could never part. The risk of love, of total love, is that without it there is nothing. There was happiness, then threat, then terrible reaction. And now there is only the dead zone of the future, infinite emptiness into which I gaze snow-blind. The consolation is that each succeeding day inserts its void between her death and now. With that I shudder slightly less. The howl in my dreams is fainter. The memory gouges the wound, but the agony fades slightly, ever so slightly. What if I forget? What if the numbness covers me completely? But I will never forget. I am nearing every day the halfway point, the centre of purgatory, where I will remain. There, that which I recall will no longer honour her with the shock of its truth, and that which I have forgotten will enable me only to stumble on without wisdom or hope. What happened? Can I remember what happened? She contracted a wasting disease, gradual, vicious, humiliating, fatal, MND. And she kept it from me, although the symptoms were undeniable. She lived with increasing loss of control, and as we cleared up, as we swept away, I waited for her to tell me. I never asked, I waited. But I waited too long. One evening, returning late from work, I found her. I, who was so used to finding death, blasé, nonchalant, a discreet overdose and polite note, and selfishly the first thing I understood was that she had been unable to share the ghastly revelation. She had been attending appointments on her own, to spare you the pain, to spare me, so much for our unbreakable bond. She had feared my inability to deal with her decline. She must have seen a flaw in me, a moral fissure, so serious that she knew that to tell me would be worse than to conceal. 
the inadequacy of my humanity, the poverty of my character, failure so severe I was avoided, my love shunned, because in the end it was too weak. I went back to work. They were very understanding. I was given time and space. They suggested I reduce my hours. They suggested I take some leave. They suggested I take a sabbatical. I resisted. Head down, I thought. Carry on. But I had been hollowed out. I was less than myself. I was a negative quantity. I think there was a genuine attempt to resume, simply to resume work and do the work in the way it had been done before. Why not? I was experienced. I understood the law, the process, the clients. But now I had no confidence, no belief in myself. It was almost as if I had forgotten how to walk, and trying to focus on the mechanics of it simply made me stagger and fall. I got up, but I folded time and again. I tried to take some rest. I stayed away from work. I called in sick. It was excruciating, the embarrassment. I had acquired incompetence, and then fear. And at the last, I was so anxious, I couldn't bring myself even to try. It would have been better to have resigned, but when you cannot respect any aspect of yourself, you feel somehow that you have an obligation to accept the worst possible outcome. I was let go. They followed their human resources procedures, and having exhausted them, had no option but to finish with me. I don't blame them. I bear them no ill will. What use was I as an employee after all? I had lost my aptitude. I had unlearned everything. The situation for all of us was intolerable. I had no job. Inevitably, then, my control over the aspects of daily living slipped. Even though I had savings, we had been good with money together, but I knew I was in trouble, I knew I was tumbling downhill fast. For whatever reason, I just could not stop the momentum of my fall. When I looked in the mirror, I saw this semi-transparent entity, the ghost of my former self. I suppose I just did not care enough to try and save him. When I saw who he was, I just did not care enough. I felt, in so far as I was able to feel anything by then, I felt a mild sense of pity, mixed with a stronger conviction that he deserved everything that came to him. The bills, the mortgage, soon they went unpaid. The obvious consequences followed. The house was repossessed. I declined offers of help. I walked away. I sought and found my own sad destitution. So here I am, under the bridge, where Pym's Brook meets the new river, and here they come, not the kindly souls who carry a concern for my mental health, not them this time, but men in hard hats and high-visibility jackets. They tramp along the river path towards me. My heart sinks. One of them scrambles down the bank, I feel as if I should disappear, merge into the undergrowth, flee from whatever bad news they are bearing. But I don't. I remain in place. Perhaps I am too weary now to run away any more. We've got to strip the banks, right back. Clean the whole lot. All the garbage, all the stuff that's rolled down from the railway, we've got to move it all away, right down to the brook. 
It's the water company. They've been forced to clean the brook now. It's more polluted than the river. So there won't be room, you see. I mean to live here, to keep living here. There's a court order, a clearance order. We have to move you on. He nods. He smiles. He stops smiling. He turns and he climbs back up the bank. I watch him join his colleague, and they both head back in the direction of the North Circular. I look around me. I try to take in everything at once, my domain. But it seems I was just passing through. A tramp, after all. Later, I watch a cormorant diving and swimming, then stretching out its wings to dry. I look at the patterns on its feathers, turning mottled brown and grey in the sunlight. I watch the cormorant until it flies away. Then the cool of evening settles, and the stillness begins. Thank you.